Tonight's Old Testament reading comes from Micah chapter 4. If you've got one of these black Bibles, it's page 855. Micah chapter 4 from verse 1. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. People will stream to it and many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes amongst many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation and they will never again train for war. But each man will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has promised this. Though all the peoples each walk in the name of their gods, we will walk in the name of Yahweh, our God, forever and ever. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration, I will assemble the lame and gather the scattered, those I have injured. I will make the lame into a remnant, those far removed into a strong nation. Then the Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from this time on and forever. And you, watchtower for the flock, fortified hill of daughter Zion, the former rule will come to you. Sovereignty will come to daughter Jerusalem. Now why are you shouting loudly? Is there no king with you? Has your counsellor perished? so that anguish grips you like a woman in labour? Rise and cry out. Daughter Zion, like a woman in labour, for now you will leave the city and camp in the open fields. You will go out to Babylon. There you'll be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the power of your enemies. Many nations have now assembled against you. They say, Let her be defiled and let us feast our eyes on Zion. But they do not know the Lord's intentions or understand his plan, that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I'll make your horns iron and your hooves bronze so you can crush many peoples. Then you will set apart their plunder to the Lord for destruction, their wealth to the Lord for all the earth. Second reading is from 1 Peter chapter 3 on page 1114 of the Church Bibles. In the same way, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands so that, even if some disobey the Christian message, they may be won over without a message by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. 
Your beauty should not consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold ornaments or fine clothes. Instead, it should consist of what is inside the heart with imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very valuable in God's eyes. For in the past, the holy women who put, on their, hope, who put their hope in God also beautified themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and are not frightened by anything alarming. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives with an understanding of their weaker nature, yet showing them honour as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now finally, all of you should be like-minded and sympathetic, should love believers and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but, on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you can inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit, and he must turn away from evil and do what is good. He must seek peace and pursue it, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their request. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. This is the word of the Lord. Nice to be with you. Uh, my name is Paul, if I haven't met before. I'm the pastor here. Uh, I haven't preached for the last three weeks, and I come back to 1 Peter chapter 3. This is a great chapter to preach on. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father God, we want to thank you for your goodness to us and your kindness to us. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you challenge us, for the way that you correct us, for the way that you encourage us and inspire us. Thank you, Lord, that your word is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. And we want to be people who love you and want to be more like you. So give us minds and hearts and wills that will be uh, eager to do what your word says. I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want to talk tonight about uh, your character. I want to talk about uh, your character, not, not your personality. I don't really care what personality you've got, but I do care about your character. Uh, I want to talk uh, not about your skills, uh, not your successes, but your, your soul, your inner spirit, your inner being. I'm not going to talk about what you do, I'm going to talk about who you are, your character. Let me ask you, how would the people closest to you describe your character? What words would they use to describe you as a person, your, your character, your, your, your inner being, your soul? So I hope you know that your character is far, far, far more important to God than your competency. God cares more about who you are than what you do. I'm sure you all know people who are highly competent. They're very successful, they're high flyers, they're high achievers, they're good at everything. But you spend five minutes with them and if you're honest, their character is really quite ugly. They're proud, they're a bit of a bully, they're nasty. Or they're bitter or sad. 
And you're thinking, I don't really care what you do. I don't really want to be like you. And I hope you know people who, when you spend five minutes with them, their, their character is just beautiful. They ooze kindness and they radiate humility and gentleness. And you're thinking, I don't care what job you do. You're just a nice person. I don't care what your latest marathon time is. Your character is beautiful. I don't care what size you are, what shape you are, what your physique is like. You're just a beautiful person. I hope you know people like that. I hope you're like that. Because God is more concerned about your character than he is your competency. So do you believe that? If you really believe that your character is the most important thing to God, I think we spend more time working on our character than we do our skill set or our hobbies. We spend more time developing and cultivating our character than we would our physique or our fitness. Remember the times when your parents came back from your parent-teacher interviews or if you've got kids when you go to the parent-teacher interviews? What was the most important thing? I hope as a parent, what I want to hear from my kids' teachers are that my children are kind and caring and loving and considerate far more than the grades that they got. Your character matters. And your conduct will flow from your character. Now, the key verse for this section is really chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Flick back to that. This is the headline for this whole section. And Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and temporary residents. He's saying, this is not home. You don't belong here on earth. Don't assimilate to the world standards too quickly. You're different from the world. And the way that you show you're different, verse 12, is you, you conduct yourself differently. You live differently. You live honorably, uprightly, amongst the world. So they see your good works and glorify God. Now the problem with that verse of chapter 2, verse 12, is that you read those words, conduct yourselves honorably. And the, the legalist within inside of us goes, okay, Paul, tell me what I can do and can't do, what I must do and what I mustn't do. Tell me all the good works I must do. And that's exhausting, isn't it? But it, it, if your conduct flows from your character, it works like this, that if you work hard on your kindness, work hard on your compassion, work hard on your, your humility, your conduct will follow. If you, if you get rid of bitterness, get rid of, en of revenge and envy, you'll be a nice person. And I'm here tonight to remind you that what's most important to God is not what you do, but who you are. Your character. And we looked last week at about your, the way you relate to governments and the way you relate to your bosses. And tonight I'm going to talk about marriage and church. And I'm conscious here that many here are not married. Some long to be married. Some have been hurt by a previous marriage. And I hope I'll be very sensitive but I'm also conscious that if we are married, we need wisdom and help. Because marriage is basically two flawed people living very closely with each other. I want to start off by asking you when that passage was read, 
that passage about marriage, husbands and wives. How did you feel? Tell me. Who's bold enough to share how they felt when he talked about wives submit to your husbands and husbands honour your wives? Yep. <laughs> no, that verse about the weaker vessel, yep. Anybody else? How are you feeling about that passage? Togetherness? Yep. Husband and wife together. An old-fashioned view of marriage. Yep, yep. Not particularly PC today. Anybody else? Not implementing much anymore. Yep, yep. In the Bible, we just don't do it. Anybody else? A high bar. I'm guessing there's a whole range of reactions. Some will be angry, some will be confused, some will be surprised, some will be sad. Sad that it's here in the scriptures, or, or sad that it doesn't apply to you because maybe you're not currently married. And if that is you, please don't switch off. The qualities and the characteristics that are here need to be cultivated by all people, whether married or single. Let me say what Peter's not saying. Peter is not saying in this passage, women... Be submissive, cut your clothing budget, and by the way, you're the weaker sex. Now, this passage is not condoning any kind of abuse in marriage. So when you see that word submit, it is not saying it's okay for husbands to be violent in any way, physically or verbally. That's always wrong. And it's not telling wives to be like a doormat who sit in silence and do what he says. It is not forbidding the use of makeup or jewelry or clothes to be attractive. And it's certainly not teaching that men are superior or more valuable than women. That is wrong. And what is kind of ironic is that when this passage was read in the first century, the wives who heard it would have felt liberated and empowered. <laughs> so a word for wives, first of all. If you're a wife or desire to be a wife. Here are three character traits to cherish and cultivate. And we'll start with the hardest one, that word submit. Verse 1, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Those last four words are really important, to your own husbands. He's not saying women submit to all men. He's saying if you're married, there's an order. And wives, submit to your own husbands. It's throughout the Bible. Wives submit to husbands. Husbands love wives. Wives respect husbands. Husbands honor wives. And I actually think the word respect is actually a stronger word than submit. Let me try and show you. It it is more than possible to submit and obey somebody out of duty and obligation, but have zero respect for them. That's not what it's talking about. If you really respect somebody and you trust them, and you say, they're seeking to love me and cherish me and lead me and care for me, then that submission thing just flows naturally. Submission is not sitting in silence, 
wise can I encourage to share your opinions, say what you want to do, say what you think you should do, explain how you're feeling, say what you're thinking, challenge the decision in loving and gentle ways. But just occasionally in a marriage, a difficult or different decision will be made. And it's that kind of that respect and that trust to go, yeah. So we're called to submit. We're called to be pure. I love that word in verse 2. Even if some disobey the Christian message, they may be won over without a message by the way their wives live. When they observe your pure and reverent lives. What Peter's saying there is that uh, these women who have such a reverence for God, that is, they, they fear God and they revere God and they, they love and cherish God. And because of that, they, they, they want to live a pure life, a, a clean life, a morally upright life, an unblemished life. And Peter's saying here, friends, don't underestimate the power of a pure and reverent life. It says here in verse 1 that some of these husbands are unbelievers. Now wives, if you're, if you're married to an unbeliever here tonight, I want you to know that this church loves you and cares for you and cherishes you and has some understanding of how hard it is to walk into church every week. But don't underestimate the power that you can have when you are living a, a pure, clean, godly life. The way you speak to your husband, the way you, what you say to him, what you do, your heart, it would radiate the love of Jesus. And I love this verse. It's basically saying that without a word, people can be one for Christ. You don't need to nag somebody into the kingdom. You need to make sure you get into church every week or every outreach service. Just the way that you live differently with this pure, beautiful life will make the gospel very attractive. I think of David who became a Christian because his wife Alice just did this. The way she lived made the gospel attractive. So there's a word submit, there's a word pure, and there's a word gentleness. From verse 3, your your beauty shouldn't consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold ornaments or fine clothes. Instead, it should consist of what is inside the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very valuable in God's eyes. I want to tread carefully here, but in the first century Rome, one one of the ways that the the women were encouraged to find their, their worth or their identity was outward adornment. You know, the world says if you wear the right clothes and you have the right figure or the right physique or the right jewelry or the right hairstyle, then you're worth something. Uh, And that's changed, has it? You've got whole industries built on fashion and makeup and jewelry. The world basically says you have to look a certain way and dress a certain way and then we'll accept you. That is wrong. And that is sad. Let me be very clear. there's nothing wrong with wanting to look nice. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the first person who, who likes fashion. There's nothing wrong with the way you, you, you have your hair cut or the, the jewelry that you wear. But Peter is saying, please, 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 don't find your greatest joy in the way that you look. Because what does God look at? What matters to God is, verse 4, 
What's inside here, inside your heart? That gentle and quiet spirit, which is imperishable. See that word again in verse 4? Chapter 1, your living hope was imperishable. Chapter 2, the word of God was imperishable. Chapter 3, this imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. If your gentleness, it doesn't sag, it doesn't age, it doesn't wrinkle. That gentleness is this, it's not being rough, it's not being bad-tempered, it's not being brusque. It's this calm, peaceful, tranquil spirit. He's not saying you have to be timid. He's not saying you have to be mousy. You can be feisty and strong, but still have a gentle and quiet spirit. And I love the way that he uses the example of Sarah. If you know your Bibles, in Genesis, Sarah was anything but timid, was she? I think if you met her, she'd be feisty. (laughs) But she's held up as an example. One preacher said this, clothing and style catches the eye of the world, but a gentle and quiet spirit catches the eye of God. I want to plead with you women, please don't be sucked in by what the world thinks is important. Please don't think that you have to look and dress a certain way to be accepted. Cultivate within you this inner beauty. And there are some beautiful women in this church, aren't there? Some beautiful women who radiate this. And people see it. And I just say thank you to the women of this church. Thank you for the way that you model this. You embody this truth. That you don't try and find your security in just the outward looks. But you know what God values. So a word for wives and then a word for husbands. And you might think, oh gosh, wives get six verses and husbands get one. But it's tough, husbands. If you're a husband or you aspire to be a husband or if you want to pray for husbands, verse 7, in the same way, live with your wives with an understanding of their weaker nature yet showing them honour as co-heirs of the grace of life, so your prayers will not be hindered. The focus of that verse is not on the words weaker nature. Let me just clarify that. He's not saying that women are weaker spiritually. That is not true. We're all one in Christ. There's no male or female. He's not saying that women are weaker emotionally. That is not true. He's just saying, and I caveat this, generally... Men are physically stronger than women, generally. And I can say that because I'm puny. <laughs> and there are much stronger women here than I am. But in general, women are less physically strong than men. The focus is not on that word weaker nature. The focus is, is actually on the word understanding. It literally says, live understanding your wives. That's hard. He's saying if you're a husband... You've been blessed with a wife, and please understand who she is. Husbands, understand how God has shaped her, and what her strengths are, and what her weaknesses are, and what her fears are, and what her delights are. Know who she is as the woman God has made her. Husbands, you're called to study your wives. Listen to her. Ask her questions. My 
tendency as a husband is to be selfish. And instead of listening, wanting to fix things and solve things and just move on. And Peter is saying, husbands, you're called to understand the woman that God has given you as your wife. So if you are a husband, let me, let me ask you some really hard questions. Husbands, what are the unique aspects of your wife? Her strengths, her weaknesses, her goals, her fears, her interests. Husbands, do you understand the, the burdens your wife is carrying? Husbands, do you understand how to care for your wife well? Husbands, do you know how to communicate to your wife well? Husbands, do you understand how your words and actions impact your wife? Husbands, do you understand how your decisions affect her? Husbands, do you understand how to please your wife? Husbands, will you cherish and love your wives like that? And if you do, verse 7, you will honor her. See that word honor in verse 7? You honor her as a co-heir of the grace of life. What does it mean to honor somebody? Can someone tell me? What does it mean to honor somebody? Respect them. Hold them in high esteem. Celebrate their worth, yeah. You cherish them, you adore them, you give them the significance, you esteem them, you appreciate them. You let them shine. That's the role of the husband. And if anybody here is into ballroom dancing, that's what the the male ballroom dancer does, isn't isn't it? Now the good male ballroom dancer, he's not saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. He wants all the glory and, and all the focus to be on his partner. Saying, wow, isn't she beautiful? That's what we're called to do as husbands. So again, I'm going to ask you, men, do you tell your wife how thankful you are for her? Do you say to other people, I'm so blessed to have her as my wife? Go home and ask her, do you feel honored by me? The way I speak about you in public and in private, in front of the kids. That's how husbands are called to treat their wives. Not dictating, but delighting in her. Not grunting at her, but cherishing her as a wife. And instead of an example, we get a warning in verse 7. Do you see that end of verse 7? So your prayers will not be hindered. And I think Peter's saying there that We can't just treat wives badly and not understand them and be selfish and then run to God with our prayers and expect God to hear us. As a husband, we're called to display the love of Jesus to our wives. And if we're doing that well, then our prayer lives will flourish. I need to say again, men, it is never, never okay to verbally or physically abuse your wives. God condemns that. God is opposed to that. So a word for wives, a word for husbands, and a word for the church. Finally, verse 8, all of you, all of you who claim to follow Jesus, 
all of you who claim to be a forgiven sinner in Christ. Work on your character. Work on the way that you relate as church. Because the world watches, the world sees. He says, work on your like-mindedness. That word there means harmony. When you gather together, we're harmonious, we're one. It's what Jesus prayed for in John 17, isn't it? He prayed that we'd be one. We'd be united in the truth and united in mind and in ethics and in faith. It's a picture here of, of an orchestra or a choir where we've got different roles and different parts and different skills, but we're, we're all following the same conductor, Jesus Christ. We're all playing off the same score, the Bible. We're like-minded. And he says, work on your sympathy, verse 8. Look at that word sympathetic. It doesn't say pathetic, it says be sympathetic. And what Peter's saying here, church, is that you are called to be sympathetic towards your brother and sister in Christ. You're called to, to carry their burdens, to care, to be kind. Now, how do you show sympathy as a church? Well, one way is that when you see somebody is upset, you don't just say, well, somebody else can deal with that. You actually take the effort to get alongside them and to care, to listen, and to act. And it doesn't just happen on a Sunday. It's followed up throughout the whole week. There's that great verse in Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We're called to be like-minded. We're called to be sympathetic. We're called to love. Verse 8, you should love believers. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the word Philadelphia. You can choose friends, but you can't choose your family, can you? And we are family. And so you're called to love people in this room tonight, even those who have hurt you. And it seems to me that as Peter is writing, he, he slips into the way that Christians are different in the way that we handle hurt. See that in verse 9? We love by not paying back evil for evil. We love by not paying back insult for insult. We love by actually blessing others who have hurt us. We love, verse 10, by keeping our, our tongues from evil and from lips from speaking deceit. We love, verse 11, by seeking peace and pursuing peace. So I will love you when you've hurt me, when you've insulted me, when you've offended me. I don't retaliate. I don't seek revenge. I don't slander you. I don't gossip about you. I don't badmouth you. And I, I don't go home and slam my front door and, and go, ah, that person at church is so annoying. Thinking that's okay because I haven't bad-mouthed them. Well, I have bad-mouthed you to God, haven't I? The way that I actually love you is by coming up to you and saying, no, I forgive you. And I speak nicely to you and nicely about you and I pray for you. And I bless you. Now that is totally countercultural. But that's what we're called to do. And I'm here tonight, friends, to say if somebody has hurt, someone in this room has hurt you and insulted you and offended you, please, please, please love them well and pursue reconciliation. 
The fourth thing, fourth thing you're called to is to be compassionate, verse 8. That word compassionate is, is a great he, uh, uh, Greek word. It's a very guttural word. It, it literally means your bowels. <laughs> that gut-wrenching action where you just want to help. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Where, where the, the man finds someone lying on the side of the road who's almost dead. And it says in Luke's gospel that he had compassion. That's the word used. Now, how did that good Samaritan show compassion? He didn't just say, oh, you're having a tough time. I feel a bit sorry for you. He acted, didn't he? In a costly way. You know, he fed him. He paid for his medical bills. He carried him physically. He changed his schedule. That's what it looks like to show compassion to people. No, words are cheap, but actions are costly. And we're called to have costly actions of compassion towards each other. And the last thing we're called to do is to be humble. Verse 8. So that word humility is not a, it's not a derogatory character trait. It's not a weakness. It's actually a strength. I mean, humility in the Bible is one of the most beautiful traits of character you can have. How do you develop your humility? One of the easiest ways is just to start each day by remembering who you are, remembering who God is. See yourself before a holy, righteous, almighty God and then look again at the cross and see how much he's loved you, see how much he's done for you um, and maybe picture the Lord Jesus Christ with, with a towel around his waist washing people's feet and thinking, how could I be proud when the Son of God is humbling himself like that? See, we humble ourselves when we say, I'm no better than you. We're just equal in the eyes of God. So church, can you work on those things? Be like-minded, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, and be humble. And it's really hard, isn't it? Why is it so hard? It's hard because I think deep down we're just all selfish. And we're just individuals. No, it's hard to be like-minded because what about me? What about my goals and my needs? It's hard to be sympathetic because other people might get attention, not me. It's hard to love when people hurt you. It's hard to be compassionate when it doesn't suit your schedule. And it's hard to be humble when you want to get ahead in life. And I need to say to you, church, I, I, I really don't care how you serve I don't care how much you pledge or how much you give. I don't care which service you choose to go to in 2016. But I do care about your character. And I care about your character because God cares. I don't care what job you do, but I do care your inner soul, your inner being, your inner spirit, whether you're being godly and gentle and kind and humble and compassionate. And my challenge, church, is let's spend more time being devoted to growing and developing and cultivating our character far more than anything else.